my concern is if if I as a Christian believe my vote should count for more than someone who isn't a Christian that that democracy should be slanted towards me or that we need to reduce the voting Are there power. people who believe that? Uh, yes. Yes, like, there are. I've never heard there that are. before. So who are they? Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. Once again, my name is Joseph Backholm, and I'm going to be your tour guide today. Now, our goal in every episode is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And today we're going to attempt to think Christianly about Christian nationalism the proper relationship between church and state, and whether some Christians today are a threat to democracy. Now, we're all aware of the debates within the church today about what Christians should do and what Christians shouldn't do when it comes to government influence. Now, some proudly wear the badge of Christian nationalism, while others argue that Christian nationalism not just a threat to democracy, but a threat to Christianity itself. That's one of the arguments being made in a new documentary called God and Country. According to the website, the film takes a closer look at the dangerous implications of Christian nationalism and explores how a base of Christians has radically stoked a movement erasing the line between church and state. The film includes several prominent Christian voices who share their concerns about what this movement is doing to the church and to the country. Now, one of the voices in the film is Phil Vischer, who I became familiar with many years ago in a very different context. Phil's the creator, many of you will know, of Veggie Tales, also of a series called What's in the Bible with Buck Denver, which I wholeheartedly recommend to young and old alike as a way to understand the biblical narrative. And uh, Phil, I'll say this before I bring you on. Last night when I told my children that I was going to talk to you today, they immediately started singing the theme song to What's in the Bible with Buck Denver. And it is truly one of the best kind of overviews of of, the, of scripture that I've seen. Uh, but I asked Phil if you would come on to tell, today and tell me if I am one of those Christian nationalists he's concerned about, and he agreed to do so. Phil Vischer, welcome to Outstanding. Thanks for having me. Glad I can be here. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. Um, first, you know, we know some of your story. Uh, tell us a little bit who Phil Vischer is and how you kind of came to be, you know, doing what you're doing, creating animated stuff, but also kind of speaking into what's going on in the church. Yeah, well, let's see. How far back do you want to go? Um, my family is, is uh, deeply Christian, going back at least four generations on both sides. My great-grandfather on my mother's side was the first non-denominational radio preacher in America who uh, went on the air in 1923 in Omaha, Nebraska, and preached every Sunday morning um, from 1923 until 1964 when he died um, at which point it was the oldest, longest-running radio show in the country. So he started a Bible conference in Northwest Iowa that is still going on. Um, this year is the 90th year for the Okaboji Lakes Bible and Missionary Conference. My mother has been there every one of her 82 years that she's been alive, has never missed a year in 82 years. I'll be there in August. Again, I've, I missed about 15, maybe about 10 years when I was uh, right out of college, but then started going back when we had kids. So... I grew up um, around I, my, you know, my grandparents were, my great grandpa was friends with uh, Bob Jones Sr. and Bob Jones Jr. and Billy Graham and, you know, a lot of the the big names from Christianity, uh, conservative Christianity in the middle of the century came through Northwest Iowa or Omaha to visit my great grandfather. So my mother actually remembers sitting on the couch in her grandfather's home when she was about eight years old, uh, in between Bob Jones Sr. and Bob Jones Jr. on either side of her on the couch. So we have a lot of very strange stories going back in my family. When I was a kid, I loved, I really introverted. Um, I loved telling stories and playing with puppets and learning about animation. And um, so many in my family were missionaries. I have lots of relatives that spent years overseas. I didn't want to do that. I did not 
want to have to go talk to people because I was too introverted. Was like, can I, can I hide behind a puppet? Can I hide behind an animated character? Can I let something else do the talking for me? But I still wanted to do, you know, I felt I wanted to do God's work. I wanted to be um, on his team out there doing stuff. And it was in high school when technology was really starting to kick in. Uh, some of the first, that's when MTV launched when I was a sophomore in high school. And, you know, for the first couple of years of MTV before it kind of went off the rails, it was like just a nonstop film festival with all these experimental music videos and animation. And people were dabbling in this new thing called computer animation. And I got very excited about that, started learning more about it. Um, I went to Bible college for three semesters, got kicked out for failing chapel, which was required attendance. And uh, my friend, I met Mike Naraki there, who's Larry the Cucumber to my Bob the Tomato. And we both went out for the puppet team because you had to do some kind of ministry at Bible college. You could do street witnessing, you could do elderly visitation, and like all of those were too social for me. <laughs> and then I got to the very bottom, but you had to pick something. I got to the very bottom of the list and there was puppet team. I was like, I could do that. Then you can hide behind a curtain and then talk, you know, to kids. So that, and that's where I met Mike Naraki. Um, and we both, uh, you know, spent the first semester just writing really weird puppet scripts and <laughs> driving around in a van and in uh, northern Minnesota, putting them on in little churches. And that's kind of how the dynamic of Bob and Larry were born. It was Mike and I doing puppet shows in Minnesota. So um, he got also got kicked out for failing chapel at the same time. So he moved in with my family in uh, the Chicago area, came back home. Um, I got a job in video production, started working in video production. He joined me in video production. Uh, the computer animation revolution was just starting to get going in the late, this is like 87, 88. And um, I ended up getting a job as a computer animator, one of the first ones in the Chicago area, uh, trying to figure out how I could tell stories. How can I tell stories? Uh, um, and this was like, you know, seven years before Toy Story. So there, the answer was, you can't. Not yet. It's too, it's too So You can do a bar graph. You can do a logo. You can't tell a story. Um, and, and then near the end of the 80s, I think around 89, I, I saw some software that had just been developed that could make very simple shapes squishy uh, squash and stretch is the basic yeah. uh, characteristic of animation it's like can you make a ball squash and stretch can you make daffy duck squash and stretch that's what brings things to life and you'd never been able to do that on a computer before until i saw this little test and it was a, a salt and pepper shaker on a kitchen countertop and they were squishing they were bouncing and i thought that is so cute how do they do that and it took about uh a year before I could get a hold of similar software. Um, and then I just started throwing objects into, basically it's called lattice deformation and you put an object in a lattice and then you can animate the points on the lattice rather than animating every point in the object and the object will change shape inside it. So I put a candy bar, made a candy bar, put it inside a lattice and then animated the candy bar bending over and bouncing out. That's cute, I can make a candy bar character. And I just got married and my wife said, you know, moms are gonna be mad if you make their kids fall in love with candy bars. And I thought, oh, that's a good point. What What's shaped like a candy bar that moms would not get mad about their kids falling in love with? And the next thing that popped into my head was a cucumber. So I made a cucumber, put a little face on them, did a little 10-second test, and then drove around to Christian publishers saying, will you yeah. give me a big bucket of money to make a show about vegetables? And they, they all said no. Um, but finally, after about two years of trying, a, a couple in our small group at our church said, what you're trying to do is too important for us to let it not happen. Um, and they wrote me a check for $80,000 from their retirement fund. And that's what launched VeggieTales uh, on the north side of Chicago in 1993. Um, and yeah, so that was a very fun 10-year ride with VeggieTales. Um, what's in the Bible was after that, which was about five years to take kids all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and then what I noticed, and this is where I get to where I am now, uh, particularly around 2012 through 2014, a lot of the kids that were growing up on VeggieTales were walking away from their faith and were walking away from the church. And in some cases it was because uh, they were more progressive than their parents and they felt you, you had to be a Republican to be a Christian. And if they weren't as, as, uh, as conservative as their parents, they thought they couldn't be a Christian. And so a friend of mine, 
uh, Sky Jatani, who was at that time an editor at Christianity Today and also a, a pastor and has a theology degree, did not get kicked out of Bible college after three semesters. He finished his theology degree. So the two of us started a podcast called The Holy Post, um, and the goal is to help uh, Christians live Christianly in an increasingly post-Christian culture, uh, particularly the younger generation that very often is kind of standing at the back door of the church saying, just give me one good reason not to walk out. Just give me one good reason not to walk out. And we're we're trying to find, uh, trying to build community for these kids um, that are having trouble with some of the behavior they see in the church. Well, and let's let's get into that. It's a great introduction and kind of background of your story. And, Thank and you've you. Been doing this. Thank you very yeah. much. And you've been doing this this podcast for a while, so you've been talking about this. The, the timeline there is nearly ten years. You kind of been yeah. talking about this trend of kids walking away. And right now, and ten years ago, we weren't talking about Christian nationalism. Today we are, and, and, and you're part of a documentary talking about that. I, I don't think that term was really part of the, the vernacular. We might have described it in a slightly different way. But yeah, how would it you was, describe it? It was, it was to a certain extent because, you know, 10 years ago you, you had uh, David Barton uh, having to, you know, withdraw one of his books for historical errors about Jefferson and trying to establish that, you know, so there were, there were debates 10 years ago about whether America was supposed to be a Christian nation. You know, what was the founder's intent? Was it founded to be a Christian nation, um, or are we reading back into history? And so, you know, and and I knew back then that Christian nationalism, it, at that time, in my head, Christian nationalism was overly equating um, America with Israel in the Bible. So you're taking, you know, you're, you're, you're saying America is supposed to be Christian. Uh, God wanted it to be Christian. God has a special role for America. And then we're taking promises made to Israel from the Bible and applying them to America uh, without r real scriptural justification. So I was familiar with the term even back then, but it is it definitely blew up on uh, uh, January 6th of 2020. So you're you're and, and you know make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Your definition of Christian nationalism is it mostly like equating as you just described there, kind of Israel with the United States and seeing like America as kind of God's chosen people. And it, there are um, ten years ago, that's probably what I would have said. Because um, that's where the conversation was. Are we erroneously applying, for example, um, you know, the, the, the children of God were Israel. The children of God today is not America, it's the church. So when you, when you would hear people talking about America in terms that were really only applicable to the church, um, that's 10 years ago, I would have said, well, that's, yeah, you're crossing the streams and that's sort of a Christian nationalism where you're turning America into a church. Um, and saying that's, you know, this is, these promises applied to the church, these promises applied to Israel, we're now applying to America. That's changed, and the movement has gotten much more intellectually sophisticated and also more diverse. So there, there's no one definition of Christian nationalism anymore. I've, I've heard some, some decent ones, the best one I've heard recently, and the simplest one, which would be, you know, from a scholar like... Um, uh, Andrew Whitehead, um, is uh, Christian nationalism is the belief that America was established to be a Christian nation and that the government should take steps to ensure it continues to be so. Um, that's Do you disagree with those assertions? Definition. Yeah. Do you disagree uh, with yes. the idea? What what part do you do you agree that do you disagree that it was historically founded to be a Christian nation, or do you disagree yes. that it currently should be? Both of those? Uh, both of those. Both of those. I th I think the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded to be a Christian community. Um, right. You know, there were thirteen colonies. Some of them had explicitly religious foundings. Some of them had commercial foundings. We want to grow uh, tobacco. <laughs> in Virginia. Agreed. So, yes, but when when the 13 colonies came together, you know, there's a, there's a very specific reason that God is never mentioned in the constitution because there were huge arguments about it. Um and they said because we we had Baptists fighting with yeah. uh, Puritans, we had Congregationalists who didn't get along, you know, and people looked at the sectarian violence that was happening in um over 
over religion in Europe, and they didn't want that here. So that's you know where Benjamin Franklin said we should. He wanted to build a facility in Philadelphia that would be available to anyone from any religious background, you know, whether it was Jew, Christian, or Muhammad. Um, and then, you know, we added the no religion test to the Constitution, which is a pretty strong sign that it was not supposed to be from, by design, officially uh, a, a sectarian nation. Yeah, there's a lot of history there. And, and I, I am not an expert on American history. I do I do believe that the... Um, the understanding, the, the non-sectarianism, there was just this general understanding that everybody was a Christian. So that was the context that they were operating in. But I agree with you that there was a, an aversion to the idea that you must be part of the right state in order to participate in public policy. But in our context today, yeah. how would I diagnose myself? How would you diagnose me? What are the signs yeah. that I am a Christian nationalist in a um, in the wrong sense? Wrong sense. Well, the kind that you are concerned about. How do I know yeah, if that's okay. me or not? My my concern is if if I as a Christian believe my vote should count for more than someone who isn't a Christian, that that democracy should be slanted towards me, or that we need to reduce the voting. Are there power. people who believe that? Uh, yes. Yes, like, there are. I've never heard there that are. before. So who are they? Well, if if I mean if you there's the hardcore stuff, um, like the Stephen Wolf stuff, which says America should have a Christian prince and the Christian prince should uh, be over the church and should leg legislate uh, any conflicts between churches. Um, where you really do want to subvert democracy entirely, and there's and and non-Christian. Are, are we movies. talking like legal disputes between churches? Like outside the legal system, I, I'm not familiar with that argument, so I don't know. Oh, it's it's the most popular Christian nationalism book in America, uh, the Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolf. Well, I've, um, I've heard of it, I just haven't read it, and so I'm trying to understand yeah. that that specific example yeah, so, you made. So that's kind of the most extreme case where he wants to go back to a 16th century model, uh, a, a Reformation political theory model that says that you know there is a Christian prince who, um, like Constantine, calls synods to settle doctrinal disputes between churches, and also where if you're uh, where there can be heresy trials. So there would be heresy trials in America under his plan. Within the church or within the legal system? No, legal system, legal system. So that's the most extreme form of Christian nationalism that's being proposed. It's also the best-selling book on Christian nationalism right now. Okay. Uh, it comes comes from Canon Press. Then you have you know Lauren Boebert in Colorado who says the the church shouldn't be taking orders from the government. The government should be taking orders from the church. Um, so that's a not a very well thought out point of view, but it is someone who's currently a sitting congressperson who believes the church should be in charge of the government. Um, well, the church it, should be in charge of the government? I mean, I, I don't interpret that necessarily that way. I mean, I, I think that there is a, I mean, there's an interesting, you know, what the line between the separation of church and state is. I mean, and there is one, to be sure. And, mm -hmm. and there's the, you know, the idea that the church, like the ecclesia, as in its role as citizens, I, I do believe the government should be more afraid of the people than the people should be afraid of the citizens. Now, I'm not going to speak for Lauren Boebert and what she was intending there. Yeah. Um, but certainly in in uh, when push comes to shove, that it, it, I wish the government was more afraid of the people than the people are of the government. I think that's been inverted. And I think it was intended for the government to be more afraid of the people. So I don't know if that's what she intended. Um but what do you think is what's the line in your in in your mind that that Christians should draw between um, the operation of the church and the operation of the state? Uh, I am not a scholar on any of this stuff. What is the line between the operation of the church and the operation of the state? Um, Christians should participate fully as citizens without demanding privilege because of their uh religion would would be my assumption well, and it and it's you know the question is whether what does it mean to be a pluralistic yeah. country do you think you know, there are there, a lot of people who would disagree with that statement 
Do you think that there is a significant percentage of the American church today that thinks we deserve privilege by virtue of our Christian profession? Um, well, you can see how unhappy people get with loss of privilege, you know, because we have lost privilege and you can go back to, to, um, losing the right, you know, of school prayer, um, you know, Christian displays on public land. So things like that, where we had privilege and we've lost privilege, you see a lot of anger over that. Do you like those results as a matter I, of policy? I, um, do I like them as a Christian? I think they're necessary for a, a pluralistic society. My, uh, my grandfather was a school administrator, uh, was a principal when the ruling came down that you, you couldn't have prayer in school. And my mother, who was in, in a child at the time, was upset about that and said, isn't that terrible? And my grandfather, who was both a profoundly committed Christian and a school administrator said, well, well, think about it this way. How would you feel if someone required you to say a Muslim prayer in your school? And she said, well, I wouldn't like that at all. And, and then my grandfather said, so how do you think a Muslim would feel if they're required to say a Christian prayer or listen to a Christian prayer in their school? And she said, I, I guess you're right. I think yeah. that's probably well, the best decision. Well, I think, yes, I think virtually everyone would agree that being forced to make a, a a religious profession or statement that they actually don't share is is profoundly un-american i think the, you know the challenges of diversity um are 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 such that when he, the idea that in a government school system which is essentially monopolized and you try to put a bunch of people who in, in in America's founding, really did kind of share a, a a broadly Christian perspective, so it was unoffensive. But you're right that the First mm -hmm. Amendment protects people from having to say things that they don't want to say and do things that they don't want to do. And I would argue, in fact, um, we've in recent years seen an inversion of that, where that that pressure, where it is no longer to you know compel a more a Muslim to say a Christian prayer if that pressure was ever real, but it is now to compel people to use pronouns or to make confessions or to uh, conduct themselves in public in their businesses or otherwise in a way that is inconsistent with with their beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a problem? Is that Christian nationalism? No. <laughs> well, um, you have yeah. to be much, much more specific because there's, you know, you have to dive into the body of, of religious liberty, jurisprudence, and there are people that do that much better than I do. Um, I have never been required to use a pronoun in my work. Uh, in but my you would kidding. be troubled if somebody was. If someone, uh, yes. Yeah, I do think that's a free speech issue. Yeah, and okay. and there, I think there's a growing uh, body of of uh, voices and some legal opinions that are pushing back on yeah. on some of that. But you are aware of the various. I think they're mostly um, kind of they're um, within cities and not states. But like the city of New York, you can be fined up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for misgendering somebody. So that pressure is, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it's actually been enforced. And I think there's a ton of, uh, of first amendment um, issues around that, but I'm, yeah. I'm still yeah. trying to wrap my head around. I mean, other, other than, um, you know, I, I agree with you. And I think 95, 98% of Christians would say, I don't deserve any legal privilege by virtue of being a Christian. And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to understand, I mean, cause we're gonna get to the documentary in a moment. But like, what are who are you concerned about? I mean, and I'm, is it me? Is it the majority of the church? Is this like, you know, a half a percent of the church that's allowed on Twitter? And so they're kind of overrepresented um, in this mm -hmm. space. Um, is this a real threat or is this kind of, um, you know, there's a nation of 340 million people and you're going to find some people of, you know, in every direction politically who don't really represent very many people, but they can be loud and draw a lot of attention. How big of a problem is this in the church broadly, or are we just like magnifying something because there are a couple of people who kind of represent the straw man we're trying to set up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there has been research done on you know the these 
a set of four beliefs if you've read Perry and Whitehead and, and their work on it. Um, and they've done the most to study it, you know, and, and see how, what percentage of the church, and they come up with a pretty high figure, kind of a disturbingly high figure that I don't quite agree with, um, because they ask four questions, you know, what was America founded as a Christian nation? I'm trying to remember what the other four questions, I'm, and, and some of them I absolutely don't agree with. Like one of them is, should the government um, encourage um, Christian values? And I actually kind of say, uh, yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about kindness and gentleness and forgiveness, and we're talking about the fruit of the spirit, yeah, I think we should. I think we and we do encourage. You know, I mean, so much of American values did not exist before Christianity uh, took over Europe. So, yeah, I think most Western nations are encouraging Christian values, even if they don't refer to them as such. Um, so they come up come up with a figure of you know as many as of different degrees of what they say is adherence to Christian nationalist ideology. And I think it, that case is overstated. We do not spend a ton of time talking about Christian nationalism on on our podcast because I don't know that it's as big an issue as some people make it out to be. The big, the, the trigger for a lot of people was, you know, January 6th and seeing so much Christian uh symbolism and and you know symbology in the crowd that was attacking the capitol and you know seeing people pray inside the chamber after having broken into the chamber and and you know the oath keepers praying together before they stormed the capitol and saying what the heck is going on so that led i mean that's why the people who made this documentary made this documentary um, because they were so concerned by what they saw as the Christian character of the attack on the Capitol. And well, we did an episode right after that. The title of the episode was was January 6th, The Christian Insurrection. Uh, so we, we were talking about it, you know, right off the bat. And the amount of, of Christian symbolism in the crowd was disturbing. Um, but I'd never... What do you attribute that to? Insurrection. Um, the amount of Christian, um, the, what would I attribute that to? That's interesting. Cause you had a couple of waves you had, you know, the, the, uh, Robert Jeffress, Jerry Falwell Jr. Wave that was, we just like Trump because we need a bully. Um, we need a bully because Christians are being bullied. And so we need a bully to fight back on our behalf. It was a very pragmatic kind of uh, transactional thing. But then you had the uh, new apostolic reformation crowd that was prophesying about Trump and saying he was a new Cyrus and he, and, you know, we're doing nightly prayer prophecy calls with thousands of people on them. And, and those two groups kind of showed up at the Capitol for different reasons. You know, you had the, the Oath Keepers on, you know, we need to reinstate law and order and we're praying to Jesus to help us. And then you had the New Apostolic Reformation crowd that was saying, you know, there's a there's a, a cloud of demons over the White House and only Trump can cast out that cloud of demons and we all need to show up on January 6th to make sure that God's will is done so, so that we can, you know, so that we can take America back. If you say we need to take back America, I'm concerned about you <laughs> because, and, and I've heard a lot of Christians say this, because the assumption there is, is that it's supposed to be mine and now someone else has it. Well, and I don't think that's how, I don't think that's how most people mean that. It, no, <laughs> though I would agree with you. And I, I don't like that term because I think the gospel is always forward looking and not backwards looking. And there were some things that were better in the past and there were some things that were much worse in the past. And I think the, the beauty of the gospel is that we should have a vision for what can be in the future when we submit to the Lordship of Christ in all things. Yeah. So I yeah. agree with you that I'm not trying to take our country back, but I think what most people mean when they say that, because again, most people are not like, you know, messaging pros. What they mean is I remember a day in the past where, uh, you know, I felt like the world was a little bit safer, where people were a little more honest, where they knew the difference between men and women. And that world is now a, a part of my history rather than my present. So I'd like to like relive some of that. So I don't, I don't know that's that that is different. a state. Yeah, I don't, but I think that's almost always what you're hearing rather than it used to be mine. Now you took it. I'm going to take it back from you. Do you disagree well, with that? The, yeah, 
um, it's a very strange phrase to choose if you would like to to bring back more Christian values to say let's let's us as a group take back America because then the obvious question is from whom? Well, and from the, the sexual is, well, revolutionaries, right? I mean, there there is a movement who has intentionally waged war on, um, you know, gender on marriage. They're the ones trying to cut off the genitals of children. And there's a whole medical professional establishment that is behind them. They're, they're platforming them on all these TVs to kind of incentivize and glamorize these things that are really destructive for children. So that's from who? Do you think it's unreasonable okay. to say we other people should be in charge besides those folks? Uh, are they also American citizens? Sure. Of course. Okay. So let's all just vote our consciences. We don't need to take the country from them. We just need we'll to take vote them our out of power. Is what they mean, right? I don't think that's what they mean. I don't know what they mean. What do you, you think? Ask what they them mean? what they mean. Uh, well, I well, am one of those people. So that I mean, and, and I don't know. Okay. I mean, that's what I think it means, right? Okay. So those citizens should not have power, but me as a citizen should have power. Correct. We Why want to win. Some, why can, should some citizens have less power than other citizens? Well, it's, Is, isn't that anti-democratic? No, it's not that they shouldn't have a chance to vote. It's that they, sh they should be relegated to a minority status because those ideas are destructive and harmful to our society and to my family. So, of okay. course, they deserve the same laws and protections as everybody else under the law. But their ideas should lose. And we, as people who agree with a certain set of ideas, we should do what is necessary to ensure that they lose. Because if they have power, it destroys people's lives. Okay. Is that a, then a, a fair argument? Um, uh, that's a fair argument if you're, if you're keeping it within the guardrails of, you know, our system, um, of course. The, the, when, you, well, there's been quite a few efforts and there always are efforts at voter suppression, like our side will do better if their side doesn't know about the poll date or if their side doesn't get a chance to vote. So there, there's a lot of scheming to how can we reduce, and this is also true, you know, when you see the gerrymandering to reduce the votes of minorities. You know, if we can, if we can gerrymander in just the right way, then the white majority will always win the election and, you know, the minorities what, in the what cities. What does the white majority have to do with it? I, I, well, because the gerrymandering in particularly in in states that uh, have a Jim Crow racial history, the gerrymandering has a huge racial component to it, um, because in those states, the party in power was typically the white party and there was an intention to suppress the vote of minorities. Do you minorities. think that's still the objective? Uh, the it's not called that anymore, but you know Paul Weyrich explained very clearly how you can't call it that anymore. You just come up with different strategies that can accomplish the same thing. But you think in in people's hearts that's still what the goal is? Um, the goal is to win. The goal is always to win. Um, but black people vote Democrat, so it would really be great if fewer black people voted. Decreasingly, but um, yeah, historically that's certainly true. Well, but, in the last election, 90%. But how is that? I mean, granted, you know, within within the machinery of our political apparatus, um, you know, yep. there are all sorts of concerns. There's there's gerrymandering. There's concerns about voter suppression, which, of course, ironically, the latest rounds of concern over voter suppression in places like Georgia, they passed those laws, actually increased uh, the total vote turnout, including the, vote, the, the black vote turnout when they said the rules were being made as kind of a return to Jim Crow, which I think we all understand um, was... Hyperbole. Was kind of well, it was hyperbole and factually false because they just love the accusation about racism. But there's also like all of the, um, you know, all of the other voter security concerns that exist from the left. You know, how many votes are being created? Why do we not have a a uh, chain of custody when we look at ballots? And why can't we go back and actually trace who people voted for and all the mail in and all the opportunities for fraud? recognizing that executing an actual election is a complicated matter. Um, I, I'm still trying to understand where you and I disagree, and I'm trying to figure out if I'm part of the problem or not, because like this, um, you know, this 
documentary that, that you were part of um, is trying to shed a um, trying to shine a light, I think, uh, on the idea that people in the church, that there are Christians who are both a threat to the church and a threat to democracy. Now, I've heard this argument a lot um, over, and I've been you know, a bit about my background, and you probably don't know that. For most of the last 20 years, I've kind of been doing um, socially conservative specific um, kind of political work. In the last five years, I've been talking about it for about 15 years before that. I worked in the Washington state legislature and then ran a, a public policy organization there. And the interesting thing, apart uh, in my role, I was constantly looking for the churches that would care and would engage. And one anecdote back in 2018, I ran a gender ballot measure in Washington state. 3% of the churches in Washington state would even participate in that. And so I was professionally obligated to find all of these churches who were really worked up and wanted to get politically engaged. And I could not find them. And yeah. that is a story that I know repeats itself over and over and over and over again. Then I also hear from other places, well, you know, the politicization of the church has destroyed the gospel. All of these churches care about is winning political campaigns. And it was my job to find those people. And I could not find them. So how is there such a disconnect between the perception that the church has been wholly taken over by political activism and been co-opted as a wing of the Republican Party, and then mm -hmm. the experience of people like me who are like, I'm looking for some people to care, and I can't really find them. How do you explain mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not one that says the whole church has been taken over by political activism. I don't believe that be the case because the churches I know have not. Um, I, uh, January 6th was a very disturbing moment for a lot of Christians. Uh, Robert Jefferson's church writing a hymn in praise of Donald Trump was a very disturbing moment for a lot of Christians. Uh, the, the rhetoric coming from the New Apostolic Reformation is very disturbing to a lot of Christians. Um, so, you know, Eric Metaxas telling Donald Trump on the phone that he would die for the cause of getting him back in office is a very disturbing Thing for a lot of Christians. So there are a lot of disturbing data points. Um, the majority of Christians are not politically active, and, and that has always been the case. Um, so people are looking at the more extreme cases and saying, wow, look over here, you know, because there are, there are political operatives that are trying to take advantage of people uh, trying to, you know, generate activity and it's not working wonderfully, but it did deliver, you know, 80 plus percent of the vote for, for Donald Trump, um, two cycles in a row. So yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm well, not, you know, I'm not a, a scholar of, of Christian nationalism. I didn't make a documentary about Christian nationalism. You know, I sat for a half an hour interview for one and I'm in it for about 120 seconds. Sure. Well, and I, I haven't seen it yet, but it, it is interesting. I mean, because you seem to be recognizing that most people are engaged. The The documentary, yeah. it seems, is trying to create the impression, and frankly, what the website says, that this movement is a threat not only to democracy in the nation, but to Christianity itself, which suggests this is a big problem. You are, But you are downplaying the breadth of the problem, it seems. And the anecdotes about Robert Jefferson's church and Eric Metaxas saying he would die for the cause, I didn't even know those things happened. So I don't know how far those penetrated. Um, again, a nation of 330 plus million people, and you can find people who do things that maybe it was a heat of passion. Maybe it was, you know, they're just committed to something that most people are not committed to. But what would you say to the I, to to those who have made the argument, and, and you, I'm sure, have heard this before, that, well, you know, Rob Reiner in this documentary, he really just wants Christians not to participate. And shaming people mm -hmm. from participating is an old trick. And, in, in, you know, 10 years ago, we would have said, stop trying to legislate morality. That was kind of the argument that was made against Christians. You should feel bad for trying to take your Christian morality and trying to influence abortion law or marriage yeah. law or gender law, because you're legislating immorality, you're being a bully, you know, sit down, shut up and go home and stop trying to govern other people's lives. 
And it yeah. seems today that that argument has been kind of reframed in terms of Christian nationalism. If you try to take your Christian beliefs into the public square, um, you're a Christian nationalist, you're behaving inappropriately, so you should sit down and leave it to the professionals and the secularists who aren't trying to legislate their morality and you know force everyone into a Christian nation. What would you say to the folks who, who, who would say, and I probably include myself in this, that that's really Rob Reiner's goal is to ultimately suppress, speaking of voter suppression, Christian turnout in general, because he doesn't like what Christians are trying to achieve in the culture. He wants a mm -hmm. secular uh, government. He wants a secular country uh, where um, Christian morality is not pervasive, where it's kind of been ghettoized. And this is a way of trying to help accomplish that by diminishing Christian influence. Yeah, I asked him that question directly on our podcast two weeks ago. Um, they offered me, do you want to interview Rob? And I said, yeah, because a lot of people are wondering why he's doing this. So I I grilled him on that, said, are you hoping that fewer Christians participate in democracy? Did you make this because you think Christians need to leave their beliefs at home? Um, and he said no to every one of those things and, and went on at, at a fair length on how much he uh, admires the teaching of Jesus and thinks the country is better the more people are following the teaching of Jesus. Uh, he's Jewish by, by upbringing. So either he's lying or he actually didn't make the documentary to try to get Christians to stop participating in politics. And, you know, you can decide, you can watch that. He didn't make the documentary. He funded the documentary. Uh, Dan Partland made the documentary. I was invited to be in the documentary yeah. by Steve, Steve Oaken, who was, uh, was an executive at PureFlix, the Christian film yeah. company, and became uh, concerned about what he was seeing and oh. in, 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 you know, how even the movies they were making were becoming more political than spiritual. Um, so yeah. They asked me do you do you it. think that there is a um, political purpose served in discouraging the church from being engaged from the left? I mean, because Rob Reiner is unquestionably on the left politically. Oh, do yeah. you think that I mean, do, do you I mean, I, I haven't even asked you kind of how you would describe yourself politically. But I mean, from what you know about me and what you know about Rob Reiner, I mean, who, mm -hmm. who would you say you're closer to politically? I am independent. Um, it, it depends on the issue. I'm probably closer to you on most issues. I'm probably closer to Rob on a few issues. Um, and that's one of the things that I push back a lot yeah. is when we decide as as Christians, for example, if you're a white Christian, that you have to take the whole bucket of issues that the Republican Party has declared are important. If you're a black Christian, you have to take the whole bucket of issues that the Democratic Party has declared are important. Whereas as a, a believer, my goal is to look at e each issue biblically and say, I don't care if this response is conservative or progressive, I care if this response is biblical. So there are areas 100%. that I would agree more with Rob Reiner, uh, but there are probably more areas. In fact, yeah. I would guarantee there are more areas that I probably yeah. agree with you. Unless you're a wild libertarian who thinks there shouldn't be public roads, <laughs> which I have bumped into those. It's like, seriously, yeah. we can't, we can't, we can't have public roads. That's how far you're taking this. So, yeah. you know, people are all over the map. And I, and I don't like the notion that it's just, it's just a binary progressive to conservative on one line, which ignores the fact that there are, you know, Ayn Rand libertarians that are over here and, you know, people over here on different issues. And it's, uh, there's a, there's a concept called diagonalization, um, a, a great book about the Bible, uh, uh, critical, uh, biblical critical theory, which is basically saying if critical theory is examining our culture through this lens of, you know, racial hierarchy or whatever, Biblical critical theory should be examining our culture and its values through the lens of the Bible. So let's walk through all the major issues. And this was this was something that Tim Keller um, also was influential about. Diagonalization says you you reject the left right binary and say no, uh, Jesus teaching doesn't fit well in either side. It's a very different thing. So let's really apply Jesus teaching to issues uh, while kind of ignoring the uh, left right binary. Well, I would totally agree with that, and, and the exercise that we're part of here is is trying to. Um, resist tribalism and, yeah. and we aren't supposed to identify with a particular label culturally because i think depending on whether you're born in first century rome or 21st century the united states um you know conservative or progressive those terms can mean different things because the first century church was progressive in the sense that they were trying yeah. to change cultural norms 
um, and in many ways, well, the, the the early 20th century church was also progressive for the most part in that it was, you know, it was Christians that were fighting for child labor laws and fighting for prohibition and, you know, fighting to yeah. stop um, all these cultural issues. You know, Christians were, and I talk about this a lot, Christians were largely behind the labor movement until the communists yeah. took it over. Yeah. And then we became so concerned about the communists that we distanced ourselves from the whole movement. So yeah, we're, you know, what is conservatism under Reagan is different than what is conservatism today. And you go back 50 years before that, the same is true. So I just, I try to, to avoid labels. You asked me a, a question, I think on, on Twitter, where you said, can you come on and explain why my listeners should see this film and yes. to be to be honest you want the honest answer yes of course it's all we want i don't th i don't think they need to <laughs> i don't honestly i don't think it's for them probably my biggest criticism of the film is i'm not sure who it's for i'm just not sure who it's for because it's the kind of documentary um that you know having watched it a couple of times that there's a lot of emotion in it um, it's not like, you know, like um, Michael Moore, when he makes documentaries, that the emotion completely tramples the facts, you know, and there are some there are some people on the right that make documentaries that are so emotional, trying to generate so much uh, heat that they don't actually expose a whole lot of light on, on facts. Mm -hmm. And this isn't that bad. This isn't that extreme. But the there is a lot of footage of January 6th, you know, and, and police officers getting beaten up. And I don't know that that's helpful because it's so emotional. And if you say, I'm not that, then you're likely to say, well, this isn't for me at all. So I don't know that I don't know that the, the documentary is for your audience. My only comment is if you are trying to reduce the ability of non-Christians to participate uh, in democracy, I think that's Christian nationalism because America is supposed to be Christian. So if you're Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist, you know, your vote should count three fifths. Instead, if that's what you believe, I think that's Christian nationalism. Um, I haven't bumped into that many people who believe that, but I have I have read some of their writings. Well, I'm still trying to find out what we dis what we disagree about, because I, I think I mean, I, I'm a political activist and I think the purpose of this film is transparent in that Joe Biden is going to run on the fact that, well, actually, I don't think Joe Biden is going to run, but the Democrats are going to run on the fact that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. And I think that's the reason why there's so much January 6th, because that's what they got, because his approval rating is in the 30s as we record this. Nobody wants to vote for Joe Biden when it's Michelle Obama. I think all that probably changes, but that's um, the only thing they can run it because there's nothing that anybody in America thinks is going well right now. But we still don't want to elect the other guy um, because mm -hmm. he's a threat mm -hmm. to democracy. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm more concerned that he's just a liar, you know, that he just he just can't tell the truth. And I have well, a there, very are, hard... there are many examples of him saying things that are not true. But that is also yeah. true of, of, you know, the guy currently sitting in the office and whether yeah, that's but, all but dementia not, related it, or some of it is just he doesn't know the truth either. Yeah, no, no one has has ever succeeded at lying you know at the level of donald trump and that's through his whole career that's from the 80s because i've been following the guy since the 80s you know and it's it's just astonishing like when you know when he wins the nomination and anderson cooper asks him um when are you going to show us your tax returns and he says oh, i can't do it i'm being audited you don't show them when you're being audited he said why do you think you're audited so much and and donald trump stops and thinks and says well it's probably because i've always been known as a very strong christian and you go, what? No, number one, that's factually false. Number two, that is so manipulative to try to calculate what could I say that would make it seem like the IRS is persecuting Christians, so that's a hot button issue, that I'm a Christian, which never has been, and that I'm one of you. So it's, it's that really coldly calculating, saying things that are easily disprovable, um, you know, because he's more known for saying that his daughter was hot on the Howard Stern radio show than he is for ever doing anything Christian in his life. Yeah. So that's the concern. But then you you have churches writing hymns to praise him, and you say, "Whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. How did we get to the point?" And, and and one of my bigger concerns is how uh, white evangelicals in in thirty years, twenty years, 
exactly 20 years, went from being the religious group that said personal character was the most important to being the religious group that says personal character is the least important for our leaders. How did that happen in 20 years that we went from the people who value personal integrity the most to people who value personal integrity the least in 20 years? I don't know that I accept that premise because I think we've been given no choice. I mean, I I don't know if you're referring to- No, no, that's a survey. That's a survey. How important is it? How important is personal integrity to a a leader? And we used to vote more than anyone, and now we vote the least of anyone. There's a lot of us who feel like we were left with no choice, that people of integrity were not an option. So then you Mm -hmm. choose less evil um, as opposed to more evil. Right, but But right now we're in the Republican primary and we're still choosing- the same well, we're not in the integrity. republican primary anymore that's over sadly um mm-hmm. hey rfk yeah. biden trump who you got in 2024 rfk biden trump i have voted third party for three states three straight elections i do okay. believe i do believe and and feel free to disagree i believe and i think david french had made this point if you find both major parties candidates unacceptable like morally unacceptable, character unacceptable. Um, and that's where you, he starts anyway. Um, vote right in your own candidate. And if the more people do that, eventually the major parties will get the message that they're not providing candidates that people find morally or ethically uh, acceptable. And I know people say, yep, yeah, then I'm throwing away my vote, which is yeah, kind of, you, I get that argument. I get that argument entirely. But if, you know, 20% of Americans said, I hate both of these people, maybe the major parties start listening and and do a better job. Well, the polling suggests this could be the year because RFK is pulling some serious numbers uh, (laughs) right now in a number of different states. And he's going to be super, super relevant unless, of course, as I think is entirely possible, um, Michelle comes into Chicago, takes over and uh, and then it's a a coronation probably. But Phil, we're out of time. Thank you for oh, coming no. on. Oh no. What happened to the time? Yeah, I don't I don't think you're a Christian nationalist unless you want to suppress the vote of people who aren't Christians. Honestly, or you want well, to use force. So. By that definition, I think almost no one is. So I'm still trying to figure out what we disagree <laughs> about. But thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, man. And friends, thank you for listening and for joining us today. Make sure you like like and subscribe wherever you have found us. New episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Also, make sure you send me a message outstanding at WashingtonStand.com. Let me know what you'd like to hear us talk about in future episodes, comments, questions. Always welcome that. Enjoy the conversation very much. Make sure you share it with a friend because they'll probably learn something as well. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.